It's a blessing to sing these wonderful songs of praise and, and filled with the riches of God's grace. That's why we're here this morning is because of God's grace. The church is not a, uh, a producer of moral people. It's not a, a, a place where you get dumped on with all these ethics and, and you have now a, a nice little list of things to go out and do. It is a place where every week we come back together as a people and we delight in God's grace. We delight in the fact that in Christ, God has given us an unmerited gift. We, we could not earn it. We did nothing to receive it. We didn't pine after it or seek for it with enough vigor to where God was watching us. And he looked down and he said, okay, now I'm going to give you this grace. But God, in his, in his unbounding love, he chose us before the foundation of the world that his son might be displayed in us and that his glory might be displayed in us for eternity. So praise God that we're here this morning together to celebrate the magnificent grace of Christ and the life of grace that, that God has called us to. One of the things that we had the privilege of, of seeing, I think so clearly, as we went through Titus in our last sermon series, was the fact that a holy life or a vigorous, striving life goes hand in hand with a celebration of God's grace. That a life that, that upholds God's grace and not human merit or human, human uh, reliance, but upholds God's grace is also a life that is vigorous and is always striving towards holiness and towards godliness and righteousness. And we see that so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, which is our current series. If you would go ahead and go with me to Matthew 7, verse 12. That's where we find ourselves today. Before we do that, I just want to make a uh, quick announcement that immediately after the service today, about, about 10 minutes after the service, that gives everyone time to go and get your children and, and just kind of take a breath. Uh, shortly after that, about 10 minutes after the service, we're going to have a congregational meeting where we're going to discuss uh, some things relevant to the life and growth of our, of our congregation here. So we would invite you to stay for that. So the current series, the Sermon on the Mount, we're getting close to the end. It won't be long before we are done with the Sermon on the Mount. But today we find ourselves in verse 12. And we're looking at what is probably the most well-known portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've been tempted to say that about a lot of passages in the Sermon on the Mount. And I probably have said that before, um, maybe about the Lord's Prayer. Because that one is so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You, it, it, people just know about it, even if they haven't prayed it or, or, uh, or ha- heard it in church. It's just kind of something that most people in our society have encountered one way or another. May not know it, uh, but would have heard it or seen it, maybe at a funeral or something like that. Well, I think even more familiar is what we have today, which is called... I think, you know, by most people, the golden rule. The golden rule is commonly stated this way, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's how it's been packaged and stated commonly in our, in our culture. And we're, we're going to look at how this, how this is worded here in the Gospel of Matthew. But that is essentially what we're looking at today, the golden rule or probably the most familiar portion of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And there is an interesting tradition that the title of this, of this saying, this statement, this maxim, this verse, uh, that the title of this or the name of this as the golden rule actually goes back to an emperor in the third century, in AD 222 or so, uh, in the AD 220s, to a Roman emperor by the name of Alexander Severus. And this, as you know, is uh, about 200 years after Christianity came on the scene. This comes at a period in time when Christianity was persecuted, not particularly, particularly during his rule, but in the period of time leading up to the early 300s, there was much persecution of Christians. And so you can go back and you can see how the, the Christians were persecuted in the 60s, AD 60s under Nero. And that's when Peter and Paul, according to tradition, died. And you go through and look at the persecutions in Lyon, France, and in the 170s. And you can see persecution in, in various local pockets and throughout the empire throughout that period. But this is not a time, this particular period is not a time of persecution. And the tradition says that the emperor, Alexander Severus, who himself was not a Christian, was so impressed with the morality taught in this statement that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his room. And so that's really where the idea of it being the golden rule comes from, which is an interesting fact. Maybe you thought of it as a golden rule because it, it's kind of the high point of Uh, social morality or what we would think about as ethics. But this is, according to tradition, where it goes back to. And the title for the sermon this morning, as we come to this golden rule, is Righteousness Rightly Understood. And some of you will remember that earlier in this series, back when we were in Matthew chapter 5, when we were just starting, we encountered several topics that Jesus was teaching on. And Jesus began in those, teaching on those topics. He began by saying, you have heard that it was said, or you've heard that it was said of old. And then he goes on, dot, dot, dot. But I say to you, you remember those, those different topics that were treated in Matthew chapter five? Well, I entitled the first two sermons in that section, Murder Rightly Understood and Adultery Rightly Understood. Those were the first two topics that Jesus uh, treated in that passage. And the reason I did that is because I think that the essence of those specific topics is what Jesus is after. So, for example, with murder, Jesus wants us to see that, that murder really begins in the heart. That the person who is angry with his neighbor in his heart or who insults his neighbor is really murdering his neighbor, so to speak. And that lust or adultery actually begins in the heart with the lust of the heart and the eyes as they look upon someone else and lust after them. And so murder rightly understood, adultery rightly understood, pulling back the veil and revealing what's really there, the essence of those things, those topics. And I think we have the same thing here today. Jesus gives the essence of righteousness itself as it is lived out among human beings. He gives the essence of righteousness or righteousness in general. And so what we could understand if we go back to those verses where we treated murder and adultery, divorce and oaths and so forth, if we go, if we go back to those verses, we see aspects of righteousness or examples of righteousness, expressions 
of righteousness. And I think what we have today is the essence of righteousness itself as lived out on the human plane. So go ahead and stand with me for this short reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You can go ahead and be seated and we'll now go to the Lord in prayer and Ask and seek and knock for him to uh, minister to us today through his word, for him to convict us of our sins, to turn us away from sin to Jesus, and to remind us of his goodness, of his grace, of his fatherly love, and to lead us by the hand out of this service this morning into a way of life that glorifies our Father in heaven and that reflects the character of our Savior who lives inside of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our holy, perfect, righteous Father, in all of your ways, you are good. In all of your ways, you are kind and loving, forgiving, abounding in love. Father, we, we delight in your love this morning. We're grateful for your grace in Jesus. You loved us before we loved you. You so loved the world that you gave your only son, That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we are so grateful. We are grateful in an inferior way, Father. We should be so much more grateful. But before your face this morning, before your throne, to your listening ear as a church, we say, thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness and your love and your grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us, who gave us a new heart, poured out into us, changing us, renewing our minds, establishing your lordship, your rule over us. Father, would he, the Holy Spirit, do his work this morning through the preaching of the word and through the prayers and the singing of the gospel, would the Holy Spirit change us, Father? We pray that this golden rule would become a way of life for each of us, that you would reshape us today in your image, that you would establish Christ's character as our measure and standard, and that by your Spirit, by grace, you would pull us towards him. Father, we know that we have many sins, many sins we do not even see. Father, you are gracious to us even in slowly bringing us along and in not 
inundating us and overwhelming us with the depth of our sinfulness and how much of a web of sinfulness there is within us. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask this morning that you would clear our consciences, that we might sit here and take in your word in freedom and with attentiveness. Father, would you meet needs here today? We ask that you will calm the minds of of people here in our midst who are worried, anxious, afraid, filled with guilt and regret. Father, would you sweep those things away by your spirit through the means of your word. Father, would you just work here today and protect us from the evil one, all of us. Protect these precious truths of your word from falling on deaf ears. We pray, Father, that ears will open up that hearts will open up by your spirit and that we will be hearers and doers and that we will live out this life which Christ has called us to. Help us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead with that slide, Michael, if you will. So as we come to study this verse... I want you to think in terms of movement, because I think what we really have as we come into this verse, as we situate it within its context, and as we look at the content in the verse itself, I think what we're confronted with is movement. And here we move from complexity to simplicity. We move from God to man. We move from self to others and from negative to positive. And so that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So let's go to the first one. From complexity to simplicity. That's what we have here, I think. Jesus says at the end of this statement or this verse, for this is the law and the prophets. Now that is an incredible way of, that, that, that puts incredible weight and import on the statement that he has just given. This is the law and the prophets. So what he has to say in this verse is the essence and summary of God's revelation on righteous living. That is incredible. If you think about all the books of the Bible that had preceded Jesus giving this Sermon on the Mount, if you think about all of Old Testament literature, everything from what we find in, in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, to all of the, the statements of the prophets as they are rebuking the people for what they should be doing and what they're, what they're not doing and instructing them in, the, in the, the path of righteousness, of proper worship of God. If you consider Proverbs, just Proverbs on its own and all of the teaching the very practical teaching about life that we are given there in Proverbs. If you consider the Psalms and all of the ways that they call us to holiness and righteousness of life, Jesus is saying that the essence and summary of all of that, every bit of that, is what he says in this verse. This reference to the law And the prophets forces us to go backwards in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to now stop at this point in verse 12. And we have to go back. It points us backwards because it closes a major section that began in chapter 5 verses 17 to 20. So just flip over there. If you'll look at that for a moment. It would be good for you to kind of follow 
the text as, I, as I'm commenting on it. So it forces, forces us backwards to chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And let me show you exactly what I mean here. So if you look at those verses, beginning in verse 17, I want to read them. Do not think that I have come <coughs> to abolish the law or the prophets. The law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. These two references to the law and the prophets, one of them we find in verse 17 of chapter 5, and then the other we find in verse 12 of chapter 7. These two references to the law and the prophets act as brackets. So I want you to see that. The law and the prophets mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 5, verse 12 of chapter 7, act as brackets for everything that is in between. And that tells us, this is called, in sort of literary language, this is called an inclusio. Is that it brackets and it pulls together everything that we have in the intervening text. And so from chapter 5, verse 17, to chapter 7, verse 12, we have a unit of thought. It's a larger unit of thought, and we've seen how all of these subcategories of thought have played out as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. But what we're meant to see at this stage in the development of Jesus' thought is that everything between these verses holds together as one thing. This is a bracketing with these two occurrences of the law and the prophets. Jesus has been unpacking what it means to live out the law and the prophets as fulfilled in him. So everything we've been talking about has really been unpacking the fact as Jesus calls out his disciples and he begins to tell them how blessed they are and he then goes and tells them that they're gonna go out into society and be salt and light He then goes here in verse 17 and begins to talk to them about how they are to live out the law and the prophets. Jesus didn't come and sort of slam those things down to the ground or throw those things in the trash can. He said, look, I am bringing out the fullness of everything you've encountered through God's revelation. Up until now, I am bringing out the fullness of it, the riches of it, and it is all being fulfilled in me and the life which I am going to impart to you you. This is what Jesus has been doing all along. So we can't miss that as we've gone through all of these little topics. Let me state it differently in this way. Jesus has been explaining up until now what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now think about it. The first part that we covered as we were looking at the law, they were misinterpreting and misapplying the law of God. They were twisting it and perverting it so that they could transform it into a manageable standard that they could keep. That was the first problem with those scribes and Pharisees. 
A second problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that they did what they did, religiously speaking, in order to be seen by men and praised by them. And then we move to the end of chapter 6. And we learn that these scribes and Pharisees also, by implication, are those who are pursuing not righteousness and the kingdom, but they, they are those who are pursuing through the desire for the praise of men. They are pursuing treasures on earth, not treasures in heaven. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 7, and we can infer from what Jesus teaches that the scribes and Pharisees are those who are constantly making judgments on others, constantly sizing up their neighbors to see how they are doing in comparison to their neighbors. Remember the the Pharisee, the religious leader, as Jesus tells it, who goes to the temple and begins to pray? And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that wretch over there. Who's the wretch over there that he's pointing at? It's a a tax collector. It is a, a publican. And the man over there, of course, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, he's justified, not him. And so all along, by inference, Jesus has been blasting. He's been blasting the righteousness so-called of the scribes and Pharisees all the way up until this time. So really, everything we've covered up to this verse goes back to, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is bringing us back all the way to chapter five at this point. So what does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus in chapter seven, verse 12, is summing up and boiling down everything that he's been saying in this entire section of text has been moving towards this statement. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You know what that tells us? It tells us that anger, lust, divorce, speaking the truth or speaking falsely, retaliation, treatment of enemies, giving to the poor, sincerity, judging, all of it, all of it boils down to this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is righteousness, rightly understood. Up until now, Jesus has been giving us various facets of righteousness, angles of righteousness. Now, Jesus wants to wrap it all up, tighten it up for us, boil it down to this very statement. And here's the main thing I want you to see at this point Jesus has moved his disciples from complexity to simplicity. He has inundated them with much. And now, he narrows it and brings it all to this one pithy statement. So listen to how J.C. Ryle comments on this verse. If you haven't read J.C. Ryle, you should. This is what he says. It settles a hundred difficult points, which in a world like this are continually arising between man and man. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules 
Maybe you're, you're wired like that. You have endless little rules. Endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. Praise God he does that. You know, God is really gracious to us. He's really gracious in so many ways. He's gracious on the, in, in the dying of his son for us on the cross. That's the heart of his graciousness. But even in this, we can see that Christ is wanting total clarity and total simplicity for his precious sheep. He loves his sheep. He's the good shepherd. And he wants us to really live this way. He's not interested in just throwing principles at us and ideas at us and giving us ethics to mull over and debate about. He wants us to live lives unto his glory and in his likeness. And so he makes it crystal clear, makes it utterly simple. Also read this quote from William Barclay. He writes, it will be a principle which will dominate his life. Speaking of the individual who applies this to himself, it will be a principle which will dominate his life at home, in the factory, in the bus, in the office, in the street, in the train, at his games, everywhere. This will dominate everywhere. So maybe, maybe you've been overwhelmed by the amount of topics or areas to focus on. You know, maybe you have been consciously, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, you've been faithful to listening to the sermons and consciously trying to, to seek the Lord's will and prayerfully asking and seeking and knocking. And you're seeking him to, to, to fill you with his grace, to fill you with the kind of righteous life that only comes by way of the Holy Spirit. But you've kind of got it right now at this point. You've got, you've got all these areas. You, you know, I judge, and I'm angry toward my neighbor, and I struggle with lust, and I'm doing this. And you've you got all these, these, these disparate little points, and you've got your list, and you're thinking through it, and you're praying through it. And I think this is the point where Jesus wants to narrow us in and give us some simplicity. He wants to take off some of that overwhelmedness from you today. So if you are overwhelmed, Jesus answers you in this way. He gives you one simple principle for relating to others. And he wants this to always be at the forefront of your mind, Christian. And here's the wonderful thing we've seen over and over again. Christ gives us the ability to live the Sermon on the Mount. It is not held up as an impossible thing It is held up as something that is utterly impossible for the natural man in and of himself, but something that is possible and is gloriously realized in the life of a Christian by grace, through faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the focus that Jesus wants us to have. So take all of those things that you have been praying over for these months Since uh, we came to chapter 5, verse 17, back in March. Since March, all these topics, all these things that you've been praying on, that you've been convicted about, and put this one thing at the forefront of your mind. Move from complexity to simplicity. But is all of this just mere doing? Is this just kind of a, a moralism, a Christian ethic? Well... That question, I think, leads to our second point, which is we have here in the Golden Rule a movement 
from God to man. So from complexity to simplicity and from God to man. Many people who do not know God, who are not Christians, have considered the value of this golden rule. An example of that would be Alexander Severus, the emperor of Rome in the 220s. And they've set out to live it. They've said, you know what, in all the ethical systems of the world, there's just a lot of complexity. And, you know, this person says this and this person says that. And so an ethically minded, philosophically minded individual who wants to live a good life, a a life of value, a, a moral life, an ethical life, may say, you know, this is good stuff. I'm going to adopt this in my value system. I'm going to make this the fountainhead of all my values. And this is what I'm going to pursue. I'm going to live this. I'm going to do this. Why is this impossible for such people? It is. It is impossible for such people. Why? I think the answer lies in the context to our verse. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. So verse 12 comes right out of what we've just gone through in verses 7 to to 11. And notice that this principle, which has to do with one's relationship to his fellow man, is built on or grows out of one's relationship to his heavenly father. Do you see the logic there? There's a, there's a vertical relationship right there in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. And then it's out of that or built upon it that we have this horizontal relationship between men among human beings, asking, seeking, and knocking with full confidence because we belong to God as his children. That's the context for this verse. In other words, we cannot interact with other people in this way, in a verse 12 way, until we interact with the Father in that way, verses 7 to 11 way. This must be preceded by that. And I think that tells us two things. I'll state them briefly and then explain them. One, I think, I think it tells us that only adopted children can do this and only functional children will do this. And what I mean by that is this. The only way A person is capable of living what Jesus says in verse 12, which we know is a summary and essence of everything else he's taught. The only way that can happen is if we belong to God as children and thereby have his character infused into us. The heart that is God-hating and man-hating and self-centered, sinful, depraved, Dead spiritually is transformed and brought to life. As we look to Christ and believe in him by God's grace, the Holy Spirit infuses us with life and we have the spirit of Christ living inside of us. And the spirit of Christ, this is amazing. The spirit of Christ who comes and lives inside of us and transforms us is the same spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, transforming us, tearing out sin, putting in the character of God, all the while, Abba, Father, relationship. 
and God's holy character all coming out of our adoption. If that has not happened to you, there is no way in this world you will ever even get remotely close to living what we find here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 12. You need Jesus Christ. We all need Jesus Christ. Apart from me, Jesus said in, Matthew, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So only adopted children can do this. But I also want you to hear this, Christian. Only functional children will do this. Now, remember what we looked at last week. We said that the Christian who prays persistently to the Father as a child is functioning as a Christian. So prayer is is being a child of God. Prayer really is just the natural way of things. It's the natural outgrowth of belonging to the Father as his children. Prayer just sort of is that. Prayer is functionally being a child of the Father. So let me say it again. Only functional children will live out what Jesus says in verse 12. We don't only have to belong to him. We have to be those who daily depend on him. Apart from that, apart from that daily dependence, that asking and seeking and knocking, that reliance on God and not self, apart from that, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next decade. It's not going to happen all the way up until you and I die. It's not going to happen. We will live fruitless Christian lives. May it not be. May we be functional children of God. You know, we're dependent on the fruits of the Spirit. What is the first fruit listed of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love. Love toward others. That is something that only comes by way of the Spirit. And what does Jesus say in Luke 11, when he's teaching on asking, seeking, and knocking. We covered this the last two weeks. Asking, seeking, and knocking. And the Father will give, if, if earthly fathers will give to their children good things, how much more, Luke says, as Luke records it, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So listen, the Holy Spirit gives his fruits Where the Holy Spirit is filling a life, the fruits of the Spirit are filling the life. And love, which is what we have here, is precisely what begins to come out as we seek, as we knock, as we ask. The Holy Spirit is given and we begin to love people. That is God's answer. We also see this movement from God to man with the two great commandments. So this kind of mirrors the second commandment. So listen to this in Matthew 22. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So think about it. Just as we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching about the vertical relationship between the individual and and the father, and then right after that, we have this wonderful statement about how we are to treat other people. Just as that's the way, the logic of these verses, so too do we find that in the two great commandments. Love God first, and then love your neighbor as yourself. 
D.A. Carson puts it this way. <clears throat> the second commandment will never be obeyed without the first. We will never love our neighbors in the way we would like to be loved until we love God with heart and soul and mind. So here's the way we need to think of this. Our social lives, our relational lives, our horizontal problems, the things that exist among us as people in our, in our families, among us and our friends, just even here in, in our local church, the social and relational and horizontal problems that we have always stem from a vertical disconnect. Always. They can always be traced back to a vertical disconnect. Stated another way, if we are to treat people with love, we must know and walk with God in faith. If we do not know, love, and walk with God by faith, we will treat people as a means to an end. We will neglect them. We will push them aside. We will even trample them to get our way and do what it is we love, what we want, but not if we love and walk with God first. So the golden rule, as stated here in Matthew, moves us from complexity to simplicity. It moves us from God to man. And now we need to see that it moves us from self to others as we kind of get down into the nitty-gritty of the verse itself. In the last couple of weeks, I've stated that prayer is one of the major themes in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see that as you go through each chapter. So Matthew chapter 5, we get the words at the very beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's an implied teaching on prayer because it tells us that out of our emptiness, we, we, we then have to go out and live this Christian life. We, we are empty in and of ourselves. We're on our faces. It pushes us to the dirt in humility, and we say we must have God. If God does not fill us, if God does not give us the riches of a godly life, we will continue to be impoverished. We will continue to be poor. So prayer is implied at the beginning of chapter five. And then, of course, chapter six is dominated with prayer all throughout the middle of that chapter. Various instructions on prayer. And then, of course, the high point of that being in what's been called the Lord's Prayer. And then in chapter 7, which we looked at the last couple of weeks, we saw this, this emphasis on asking, seeking, and knocking. That that is the means by which all the things we've looked at will be accomplished. So prayer is pervasive in the Sermon on the Mount. In every chapter, we find it. And here's the incredible thing that we need to see. This emphasis on prayer has done two seemingly opposite things. Think about this. This emphasis on prayer has pushed us towards self and away from self. This is very important that we see this. Everything Jesus has had to say in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer, it pushes us both towards self and away from self. How does that work? Well, let's look at towards self first. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've been forced to consider our own personal needs all throughout. We've been forced to consider our need for bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. Our needs in general. Your father knows what you need before you ask it. Food and drink and clothing. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, 
or your body, what you will put on. We've been, we've been forced to contemplate these things that we need because what does Jesus say at the end of that passage? He says, don't worry about those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But then what does he say? And all these things will be added to you. So we've been forced to think about these needs because they are natural to consider. There are things that we must consider. So this pushes us towards self because it forces us to consider our own well-being. Jesus does not neglect our own well-being in the Sermon on the Mount. He forces us to think about it. I want you to see how this moves towards what we're going to read here or what we see here in verse 12. So Jesus pushes us towards ourselves or prayer pushes us towards ourselves. But it also, and more fundamentally, it pushes us away from self. And here's what I mean by that. The teaching on God as Father and the need to pray have forced us to consider that God takes care of our needs. So we look inward and we consider our neediness, our need to fill our stomachs, our need to fill our spirits. And we go to God in prayer and then in the process of going to God in prayer, he assures us that he takes care of all of those needs so that those needs can then be set aside as a focus and the focus of the Christian can go elsewhere. Do you see that? Do you see how Christ's teaching on prayer has done these two things? Here's my point. The Sermon on the Mount has brought us to a point of self-awareness and self-abandonment. Both of those things, self-awareness and self-abandonment, are necessary in order for verse 12 to make any sense. In order for us to make any sense of what Jesus says when he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because we're conscious of our own needs before God, we are self-aware enough to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. In other words, Jesus wants us to remember what we would have others do unto us. Because the things that we're asking God to do for us, God will often do by means of other people. And so throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've been forced to think in these self-aware terms. But it goes further. Because we are trusting God to take care of us, our focus is freed up to care for others. I've already entrusted myself to the Father, the Christian is supposed to say. He's got me covered. I'm not worried about me. I'm not focused on me. God has me covered. What's my focus? What's my interest? Other people. Other people. In light of what I want, I want to do the same to other people. So Philippians 2, 3 to 4, which is an often cited verse or a little passage, is important here. It says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Christians, see this. If you have given your interests into the hands of your father, and you have believed that he's got your interests in view, and he's going to take care of you, then you're free to be about the interests of others. Movement from self to others. So we move from complexity to simplicity, 
from God to man, man, from self to others. And then finally, as we finish up this morning, we move, Jesus moves in this passage from negative to positive. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, shortly before the time of Jesus, there was a very well-known rabbi named Hillel. And there were two schools, two prevailing schools of Jewish thought when Jesus came onto the scene. And those who followed the rabbi Hillel were, were part of one of those schools. And on one instance, there was a man, a pagan man, who came up to this rabbi Hillel and asked him if he could summarize everything in the law while he was standing on one leg. In other words, the pagan said, I'm going to stand on one leg, balance myself, and I want you in the space of that to give me a summary of the teaching of the whole law. Can you do it? It's a challenge. And Hillel took the challenge, and this is what he said. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary of it. That is what this rabbi said. Wise words. Wise words. We also get, uh, even before that, a couple hundred years before that, we get the book of Tobit, a Jewish piece of literature written between the time of, of the prophet Malachi and the appearance of Jesus on the scene. And in Tobit 4.15, we read, What you hate, do not do to anyone. So this is kind of the background noise of Jews who would be hearing Jesus. And what I want you to notice is that is not what Jesus says. Jesus does not say what you don't want people to to do to you, don't do to them. What you look out and think you hate done to yourself, don't do that to other people. Jesus' emphasis is not negative. Jesus goes far Far beyond that, what we need to see is that Jesus moved his earliest followers and us from a mere negative view, what we are not to do, to a positive view, what we are to do and to be about. What are the implications? This is not merely hunkering down and trying not to hurt anyone. See, that's easy, right? You say, well, okay, I won't cut that person off. Okay, well, I won't, uh, I won't lie to that person. So you got a list of things. You, that's, a, that's fairly easy to do, especially if you're sitting around thinking, you know, I haven't killed anyone, you know, the, the whole the, the list that we tend to go to. I haven't killed anyone, haven't robbed a bank, you know, whatever it is that we tend to say. This is not merely hunkering down and trying to not do certain things to our neighbor. Instead, this is being proactive and active in pursuing the good of everyone, everyone we might come into contact with. That's incredible. Do you see now why Christians are to be the salt and light of the world? A bunch of people who are moving about in various spheres of life, various socioeconomic status in various countries all over the world doing various sorts of things and all of those people doing unto others as they would have them do to them. That's the glory of Christ in the world. 
That's the righteousness of God seen like the noonday sun on the earth. As Christians, we live this kind of life. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's go out into the world. Wherever God has providentially placed us, And let's do what only we can do. What only we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through our crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this precious teaching from your holy word. Thank you that all the glorious living of the saints of old in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11, records all of that holy character and conduct we find among those men, those sinners. We see them shining like stars in heaven in the midst of unbelieving and idolatry, unbelieving and idolatrous people, Father. We see them shining forth and to know that all of that that we find there, all of that teaching, all of that wisdom is summed up in this glorious truth that your Son has put into the heart of every one of us. Oh, Father, would we feel the weight of the Christian life? God, would we desire this life more Would we not settle for pettiness? Would we not settle for little routines? God, would we feel the weight of this glorious existence? Would we be perfect as our Father is perfect? Would we be holy as our Father is holy? Lord Jesus, you are our treasure, our life. Give us, give us your life, feed us. Feed us, Jesus, what we need. We know that the branches, apart from the vine, are worthless and can do nothing. So Jesus, help us to live your life even now. Show us how we can make this truth, this reality, practically realized in our lives. Show us, Jesus, how we can go forth now and put into practice what you say to us in this little verse. In your precious name we pray, amen.